tonight, I'm going to do something that I almost never, ever do. And that is, I'm going to preach in response to a current event. I'm going to preach in response to a current event. And the current event that has been the inspiration for tonight's message is probably the news that you've seen over the last uh, week and a half with the nation of Israel. Um, You might have seen on October 7th, Hamas, which is a Palestinian militant group, invaded Israel. There was a massacre of of many Israeli civilians that took place on that day, and since then, Israel and uh, Hamas have been at war. And maybe you've seen a lot of different uh, Christian responses to this. Um, You know, maybe you've seen some Christians say that all Christians are called to support the state of Israel, um, that all Christians should not support the state of Israel, or, or, you know, maybe you've seen people say that whenever anything happens with Israel in the Middle East, it must mean that the end of the world is near, you know, maybe you've heard that. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to actually speak very much at all to, to the current war that's going on, but what I do want to take on are questions like these tonight. What is the place of Israel in the Bible? In light of the coming of Jesus, does the nation of Israel still have theological significance? How should Christians relate to the Jewish people? Those are the questions I want to look at tonight that have come into a lot of people's minds in light of the news headlines. And I want to do that by expounding two passages tonight, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. They're both on your handout. But first of all, here's our outline. And you know, I just got to hand it to our tech team. I, this is mostly my fault that uh, we're starting late. And I just want to give a shout out to the tech team for being so good at getting all the slides, all the things in there, um, despite the fact that the computer kind of is going to make the slides look a little weird tonight. Hopefully you can still read them. But here's our outline. First of all, why does this topic matter? Who cares? Number two, what, is the, what, what actually is the story of Israel in Scripture? And then number three, so what? What does the story of Israel reveal to us about who God is? Okay, so why does it matter? What's the story of Israel in Scripture? And then so what? <clears throat> First of all, let's, let's look at why this topic matters. Um, I want to claim tonight that it's imperative for every Christian to know and understand the place that Israel occupies in the story of Scripture. And there are four reasons for that. And now, the, re- the reason I say claim is I'm not going to attempt to prove each of these four reasons to you. I think the rest of the teaching tonight will do that implicitly as we go along. But let me just give you the four reasons, okay? Number one is news. Number two, history. Number three, Bible. Number four, God. There are your four words. News, history, Bible, and God. First, it is imperative to know and understand what the Bible says about Israel in order to get the news right. This is not the first time that Israel has been in the news, and according to Scripture, it's not going to be the last. In fact, uh, up on the screen, uh, there's a couple of snapshots I've taken of just some past news articles that pertain to Israel. So it's not uncommon to see these sorts of headlines, and and in order to grasp how we should understand them, it's important to look look at Scripture. And tonight, we're going to see that the Scriptures contain multiple prophecies of events that one day will take place in the Middle East in connection with the nation of Israel. And if we're not aware of those things, then there's two dangers. One danger is that you can fall into fear because of what you read in the news, or fall into apathy because of what you read in the news, ignoring Jesus' expectation that we be aware of the times and the seasons that we may be living in. 
So that's number one, the news. Number two, history. It's imperative to know and understand what the Bible says about Israel in order to get history right. According to a preacher named S. Lewis Johnson, he says, the key to world history is the nation Israel. And that is true primarily in this sense. And, and it's true primarily in this sense that it's through the nation of Israel that Jesus came into the world. But it's also true secondarily in the sense that according to Scripture, the Jewish people play a central role in how God has dealt, is dealing, and will deal with the other nations of the world. And we're going to see that as we look at the Bible tonight. And then that's actually the third word, the word Bible. It's imperative to know and understand what the Bible says about Israel in order to get the Bible itself right. Everyone would agree that Israel plays some kind of role in the story of the Bible. But there's a lot of disagreement about what that role is. Covenant theologians think one thing. Dispensational theologians think another thing. Don't worry about what those words mean if you don't know what they mean. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not sure what they mean. And within those kinds of views, there's multiple different varieties of, of positions and views and perspectives. So the thing is, it actually does matter. The role in the story that you think Israel plays in the Bible is going to affect the way that you read the Bible enormously. In fact, I would want to humbly argue to you that without studying what the Bible says about Israel, there are going to be huge swaths of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, that are going to be almost completely opaque to you. And then most, uh, finally and most importantly of all, it's imperative to know and understand what the Bible says about Israel in order to get God right. Let me read you a passage from the book of Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 36. Ooh, that's really small. If you have really good eyes, then maybe you can read that. But if you don't, I'm going to read it out loud for you. <laughs> it says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to... Whoa! It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Now, this is one of many places throughout Scripture where God says the way that he will show to the world his heart and his character is through the people of Israel. And tonight, what we're going to see is that the story of Israel is exactly that. It's a story, and it's not just a story, but it's a love story. You know, every person who believes in Jesus, every person who is here tonight who knows and loves Jesus, you may not know this, but you're living in the middle of a love story. It's the story of God's pursuit of you through your sin and your rebellion. And that story, your life, is a, is a living, breathing witness to the majesty and goodness of God. Every believer has a story like that. But there is one story like that that's been canonized, and it's the story of Israel. The story of Israel stands in Scripture as God's preeminent illustration of what his heart is really like. I, I would say to you that there is hardly a more moving powerful or profound demonstration of the gospel in the story of how God has dealt with the people of Israel. And so tonight, let's just look at that story. I hope that kind of whets your appetite a little bit. So uh, go to your handout if you've got it in front of you and look at the first 
first chapter, which is Ezekiel 16. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I, I do want to read a few of the first verses here. So let's, um, let's look at the beginning, chapter 16, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey, I gave you to eat. You offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happens, happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And now really briefly just jump to the end. Verse 59, 59 on page 4. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you. 
and you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. This is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. And it's a chapter that tells the story of Israel, which for our purposes tonight we can break down into three parts. Creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. And I want to start with what this tells us about the creation of the nation of Israel. And to grasp that, we actually have to go back to get a little bit of biblical backstory. So if you go to the very first pages of Scripture, to Genesis... Genesis 3.15, in response to the sin of Adam and Eve, God makes a promise that one day he's going to raise up a human being, someone from the line of Adam and Eve, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And later biblical writers would call him the Messiah. He was going to be the one who would rescue God's people, save them from their sin. His name starts with a J, in case you were wondering. (laughs) And one of the best ways that you can summarize the Old Testament is by saying that the whole remainder of the Old Testament is just one long search to find out who that promised person's going to be. So it's a little bit like a funnel. It narrows down the promise to Jesus the further along you go. So example, example. Uh, Example is the story of Noah, actually. Noah enters the story after a long genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And it spans more than 1,500 years, and it narrows down our focus from the thousands or maybe even millions of the descendants that Adam and Eve would have had in that time to one person, one particular branch of that family tree, and it's Noah. And when Noah is born, his father even seems to think that Noah might be the promised deliverer. In Genesis 5, verse 29, Noah's father, Lamech, he gives him the name Noah, and that's a name that sounds like a Hebrew word that means comfort. And here's what he says. He says, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, in other words, maybe Noah's the one. Maybe he's the deliverer who's going to reverse the curse and deal with sin. But he's not. (laughs) Even though Noah finds grace from God, you know, he's rescued through the flood with his family, and he eventually becomes the founding father of a new humanity. Instead of rescuing that humanity from the painful toil of the ground the Lord has cursed, Noah actually becomes a victim of the ground the Lord has cursed. Because the very vineyard that he plants in that ground turns him into a drunkard. If you remember that story. And so, on goes the search. From Noah, it narrows down to his son Shem. Then from Shem, it narrows down to Shem's descendant, a man named Terah. And then from Terah comes a man named Abraham. And Abraham is significant because God makes a covenant with him. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is a binding promise between God and another party, usually humanity. So in Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15, the verse we looked at, God makes one big promise that one day he's going to bring the Messiah. But flowing from that promise are covenants little promises, so to speak, from the big promise, and they give you more information about what the fulfillment of the big promise is going to look like. And the covenant that God makes with Abraham is one of the most important covenants in Scripture, and it includes three main things, a land, a blessing, and a seed. A land, a blessing, and a seed. So you see this in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, 
And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then a little later in verse 7, he says, To your offspring, or to your seed, I will give this land. So you can see here, you know, there's the three things. There's the promise of blessing, the promise of a land, and the promise of descendants or of seed. And, and in fact, when you get to the New Testament, we discover that the seed isn't just descendants plural. It's in particular wanting to focus on one special descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be the one through whom all the nations are going to be blessed. He comes into the world through Abraham's family. So in other words, you know, what detail are we getting about how God's going to fulfill the promise? He's going to fulfill it through one particular family, the family of Abraham. Now, why do we start here? The reason is that this becomes the basis for the creation of a subset of Abraham's family, which is the nation of Israel. If you read through the rest of Genesis, you know, why, why does Genesis start with, you know, the creation of the cosmos, you know, as big as you can possibly get. And by the end of the story, it's narrowed all the way down to the problems and foibles of one tiny little family. You know, why, why is that? Kind of a strange way to organize a book. Well, the reason is because through the rest of Genesis, God takes that promise to Abraham and he repeats it, not to all of Abraham's descendants, but specifically to his son Isaac and to his grandson Jacob. So in Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4, they're repeated to Isaac, not Ishmael. And in Genesis 28, 13 and 14, as well as 35, 11, and 12, they're repeated to Jacob, not Esau. And Jacob becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Okay, so there's your backstory. Now we can look at Ezekiel. So, so go back to Ezekiel and notice here verses 1 and 2 again. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. And then verse 4, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. God is taking the capital city, Jerusalem, capital of, capital of the nation of Israel, and he's using Jerusalem as a figure for the entire nation. And through Ezekiel, he's comparing the people of Israel to a little baby that no one wanted. Back in ancient times, it wasn't uncommon that if the parents didn't want to keep their child, they would just leave it out in the open to die in the elements. In fact, we actually, there's actually a letter we have from our, the Roman period, and it's a letter from a Roman father who's writing to his wife while away on a business trip. And here's what he tells his wife in this letter. He says, if you give birth to a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, expose it. In other words, leave it out in the open to die in the elements. God says that was what Israel's fate was like. The reason that, that, that Israel as a people properly begins with Jacob is because God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob, you might know, is a scoundrel. <laughs> now, my middle name is Jacob, so this might change the way you look at me. You know? <laughs> What's in a name? I don't know. But, but Jacob, Jacob's a scoundrel. He's not the kind of guy you'd want your, your, your daughter to marry. He's a liar. He's a cheater. And his own sin nearly ruins his, his whole family. And his sons, who are the founders of Israel's 12 tribes, they're not much better. 
You know, the last part of Genesis, it's the story of how Jacob's sons sell their brother into slavery, and then they nearly starve to death in a famine. So Israel begins as one weak, sinful, squabbling little family, just like the baby that no one cared for. And by the way, that story is, has always been an encouragement to me that God is able to redeem families. If you're here tonight and you just are living in the middle of just a really messy, awful family situation, just this is a story that shows that God's able to redeem families. Isn't that cool? So anyway, Israel starts out as this, this tiny, weak little family. And just like in Ezekiel, God in his mercy looks on them and decides to adopt her. Look at verse 6. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. As you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a uh, plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Now, this is exactly what happens to Jacob's family. So, end of Genesis... It's the beautiful story of how God rescues them from famine. He knits their family back together. He brings them down to Egypt, and they grow into a great nation there. And he promises that one day he's going to bring them back to the land of Canaan. And then verse 8, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with, with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Then uh, let me just jump down to verse 13. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect. Now this section... This calls to mind another covenant in the story, which is the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. For our covenant of Moses at Mount Sinai. 400 years later, God, what does he do? He rescues Israel out of Egypt. They enter into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai where God promises to be their God. And then he gives them the law. He gives them the, the tabernacle, all these things that essentially help Israel to be adorned, to be beautified, to be made into a nation that wins the, 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 the fame of the rest of the surrounding world. Like you think about the story in the book of First Kings when the queen of Sheba, who's a Gentile pagan queen, comes from hundreds of miles away because she's heard about the glory and the splendor of the nation of Israel. So what is Ezekiel saying? It's saying that God didn't just... Adopt Israel, rescue her, create her. God sees the young woman he rescued and adopted, and now he pledges to marry her, to be her bridegroom. So do you see? Do you see why tonight I've entitled this message, The Love Story at the Heart of, of History? It's because even in just these first 15 verses, we're being told a love story. It's the story of how God, on the basis of his one promise and all the covenants that come out of it, he saves, he sanctifies, and he marries a weak, poor, undeserving ethnic family called Israel. That's chapter one of the story. It's the creation of the nation. Chapter two of the story, verses 15 through 19, the fall of the nation. Uh, look, look at that section. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. 
Now, I'm not going to keep reading because if you keep reading, this is some of the most graphic R-rated language in all of Scripture. Ezekiel 16 says that instead of loving and cherishing the bridegroom who had rescued her, Israel betrayed him and became a prostitute. She goes after other gods. She goes after other idols. And she abandons the marriage covenant she'd made with God. Um, One person who... In, in modern times, knew what it was to be cheated on was a woman named Elizabeth Edwards. Um, she was the wife of vice presidential candidate Senator John Edwards, if you remember your uh, recent political history there. And, and John Edwards had an affair. He actually fathered a child with another woman. And so in her memoir, um, Elizabeth Edwards, his wife, writes about what it was like to discover that her spouse had been unfaithful to her. Quote, After I cried and screamed, I went to the bathroom and threw up. I felt that the ground underneath me had been pulled away. I spent months learning to live with a single incidence of infidelity. And I would like to say that a single incidence is easy to overcome, but it is not. I never need flowers or jewelry. I don't care about vacations or a nice car, but I need you to be faithful. Leave me if you must. But be faithful to me if you are with me. Now, if that is the pain that one person can feel from infidelity, just think of what Israel's unfaithfulness must have meant to the heart of God. And the climax of that unfaithfulness was the crucifixion of Jesus. So just think about the first pages of the New Testament. Jesus shows up. He offers himself to the people of Israel. Matthew 1, verse 1, the very first line. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here's the promised Messiah. You know, he's the one who's been sent to rescue Israel from all of her sin. And instead of embracing him as king, they crucified him instead. And as a result, Israel is temporarily cut off. And this takes us now to our New Testament passage of the evening. This is Romans 11. So this is on the other part of your handout. Romans 11. Romans 11. In Romans, as a book, and and, in Romans 9 through 11 uh, particularly, Paul is, is addressing a lot of questions that have to do with the nation of Israel. And in Romans 9 through 11, he's answering the question, what's going to happen to Israel now that most of the Jews have rejected Jesus. Does this mean that God has rejected Israel altogether? And as forcefully as possible, Paul's answer is no. No, he is not. And he starts off his argument here in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So in other words, Paul knows here that someone might say that since most of the Jews rejected her Messiah and are still under God's judgment, it would really seem here like God's promise to save them just wasn't true, like God had lied about it. He didn't actually mean to fulfill his promises to them. But Paul says no. Paul says no. Paul says God's promise hasn't failed. He says instead, you've forgotten a key principle taught all throughout the Old Testament. He summarizes that principle in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, this can be illustrated here through a diagram um, 
Oh, it's an invisible diagram. Well, okay, um, who here likes donuts? Okay, so, um, you know, today I, I, I was so tempted to stop and buy myself a donut, but I didn't. I didn't. Instead, I'm going to preach about donuts instead. Um, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a glazed donut, you know, so outer ring, inner ring. Got it? Outer ring, inner ring. You can imagine that outer ring representing all ethnic Jews. But then inside that, that circle of all ethnic Jews, there's a littler circle, kind of the whole of the donut, which represents believing ethnic Jews. So those ethnic Jews who have actually come to put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. Now, this is something that's taught throughout the Old Testament, where you find that there's plenty of, of those who actually... Uh, a part of, you know, part of the Old Testament story who put their trust in God and his promises and then those who, who don't. And this is why in Romans 9, the, so much of the rest of Romans 9 is showing how this donut dynamic, if I can call it that, plays out. The promises that are given to Abraham go not to every descendant of Abraham, but to Isaac, not Ishmael, to Jacob, not Esau. In other words, it's not enough just to be born into the right family no one is saved just through that. You have to be called and chosen by God. And that's the principle of election. So, okay, that, that, that's kind of how Paul starts the argument. But if it's really only believing Israel, the inner circle that's saved, you know, does that therefore mean that all Israel, the whole circle, no longer matters? And the answer is no. That's what Paul clarifies in Romans 11. So look at Romans 11 now. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says of Israel... God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And he explains that, that one proof of that is that even now when most Jews have rejected Jesus, there's a small remnant of Jewish believers. So people like Paul or Peter or the other Jewish apostles, they're part of that remnant. Or, you know, maybe you've heard of others. Um, Felix Mendelssohn, the famous composer, you may not know this, he was a Jew who became uh, a Christian. He became a believer in Jesus. He went on to write the Reformation Symphony. So that, that remnant is proof that, through, that, that though Israel has stumbled, God hasn't dropped her from his plan. So in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11, Paul's argument is that Israel's rejection is not total. Even today, there's still a remnant of Jewish believers. But then in verses 11 through 32, his argument is that Israel's rejection is not permanent. In verse 11, Paul's question is this. He says, can we expect that the people of Israel will be restored? You know, in other words, we know that there are some Jews who are saved right now. Can we expect that there will be any more who will be saved throughout history? He says, the answer is yes. Yes. Look at verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Now, by stumbling here, he's referring to the fact that most of the Jewish nation has rejected Jesus. But is that... Is that stumbling permanent? Is that always going to be the, the state of, of how Israel sees Jesus? He says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now, Paul here is actually just riffing on Jesus. Jesus predicted this exact thing. In Matthew 21, Jesus predicted that because the Jewish nation rejected him, they would be temporarily set aside 
in terms of their place and the purpose of God. And the Gentiles, Israel's enemies, would receive the Messianic blessings. So Matthew 21, verse 43, very important verse. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And he's referring there, I believe, to the Gentiles. So now here's why Romans 9 through 11 is so profound. He's making a profound argument here. So you may remember chapter 9. If you know that chapter, Paul makes reference to the example of Pharaoh. Why does, why does he mention Pharaoh? You know, of all the examples Paul could have reached for, he's talking about how God is the one who sovereignly calls people to himself, and, and Pharaoh was an example of someone who hardened his heart toward God, and so God, in response, hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why does, why does, of all the people, does he mention Pharaoh? Well, his point basically is this. He's saying, hey, Israel, do you remember when God used the rebellion of all of the Gentiles, the, the Egyptians, to save all of you Jews in the Exodus? Doesn't God have the right to do the exact same thing again, but this time in reverse? We are living in an age where God has used the rebellion of Israel to rescue us, a bunch of Gentiles. It's because of Israel's rejection of Jesus that the gospel has been able to go out to the Gentile world. That's what he means when he says their transgression means riches for the world. But then, did you catch the end of verse 12, where Paul says, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So he's hinting at what he'll say a little more fully in verse 26, that one day all Israel will be saved. So let, let, let's, let's see how Paul illustrates this. So this is the, the section of Romans 11 that's the famous example of the olive tree. The olive tree. If anyone's been to Israel, maybe you've seen an actual olive tree. Uh, they're pretty gnarly and gangly, like if it were, um, it would fit pretty well in if uh, it were that scene in Lord of the Rings with the ants, you know. So anyway, olive trees, places, uh, trees you find in the land of Israel. And Paul uses an olive tree as an illustration. And there are three parts to the illustration. There's the root of the olive tree, representing the promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's the natural branches, and there's the wild branches. Israel, Paul says, are like the natural branches of the olive tree. They're the natural descendants of Jacob, to whom the promises were originally given. But... Because of their rejection of Jesus, the majority of those branches have been temporarily cut out of the tree. And in their place, Paul has grafted in the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are called wild branches because they were not the original recipients of those promises. They're connected to the root, not through natural descent, but through faith. This is the point of, for example, Galatians 3, where Paul speaks of how we're made sons of Abraham, children of Abraham, by faith. That's how Gentiles can be included in those promises. But, but here's the key detail. Look at verses 23 and 24. Paul says of Israel, And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So now there's no salvation outside of Jesus. He's not saying that there's two different ways to be saved, one for Jews, one for Gentiles, but he's saying that if they don't persist in unbelief, if they someday come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, then of course God's able to graft them into that tree again. After all, he says, if you Gentiles were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, 
and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So in other words, it was Israel's olive tree in the first place. So it would be the most natural thing in the world for God to graft them back in again. And that, he says, is exactly what one day will happen. The climax of this whole chapter is verses 25 through 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Now, mystery here, that word, it's a signal that Paul is about to give us new information, something that wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. And here's what that is. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul here is saying that there's going to come a day where God will graft Israel back into the olive tree when all Israel will be saved. And we'll talk in a minute about what all Israel means. But, um, and, and actually, in just a minute, we're going to look in a little bit more detail at this, this whole climactic last chapter of, of Israel's story. But, but first, let me just, I want to show you this a little bit uh, more clearly up on the screen. So here, here's an olive tree. And an olive tree, you can kind of liken a bit to um, a power strip, if we've got any electricians in the room. So uh, let me see if these uh, show up here. Can you give us uh, the next slide here? Yeah, okay, so here's a power strip. And you see, you've got a, um, a standard, I guess that would be, what is that? There's male and female, that'd be a, a male plug. And that uh, would sort of be a picture of the Jews. They're the natural branches that you can see how they would naturally fit into that, that power strip. And then uh, next slide. Now, there should be a little arrow there uh, that that X is crossing out. But because of the majority of the Jews' rejection of Jesus, God has temporarily pulled them out of that olive tree. Next slide. And so they've been cut off. Uh, and then uh, next one. But now oh, there's still a Jewish remnant. So people like Paul, Peter, Felix Mendelssohn <laughs> are still connected to that power strip. And then um, next slide. Yeah, okay. A little, yeah, showing up a little messier on this screen than on my computer, but you can get the idea. Now, what I've got there, that is, um, I guess that would be a female plug that you know, wouldn't even physically fit into that power strip. Sure, well, sure, but, uh, you know, the little coupling, yeah, you're sorry, you're right about that. Thank you, David. But the point is, you can tell it wouldn't naturally fit into the strip. And it's a little bit of a picture of what God has done with Gentiles. Gentiles are called the wild branches. The promises weren't originally to them, but God has grafted them in through faith. And one day we're told that God will regraft the Jews into their own olive tree. So does that kind of give you a bit of a picture of how that illustration works? I hope so. You're all laughing, so uh, maybe I've just distracted you. <laughs> but all right, all of this, all of this is going to take us now to just our, our, our final chapter of Israel's story. This is the story of her redemption. This is her redemption. So the last few verses of Ezekiel 16 that we read speaks of God making atonement for the nation of Israel. And that atonement was made when Jesus substituted himself for Israel and for all of humanity when he died on the cross in our place. And because of what Jesus did, 
God still has a plan for Israel, and I'm going to look at what that is now with you. According to God's word, we can fill out what we've seen in Romans 11 with three events that still remain in that plan. Number one, the regathering of the Jews. Number two, the redemption of the remnant. And number three, the renewal of the world. The regathering of the Jews, the redemption of the remnant, and the renewal of the world. So first, the regathering of the Jews. In the book of Isaiah, and then uh, multiple places throughout the Old Testament as well, if you want more references, come see me afterward. I've got a whole bunch for you. Um, in, in those places, Scripture predicts that God will bring the Jewish people back to their native land. So here's Isaiah 11, 11 through 12. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Now, did you notice here? This can't be talking about the return from the exile to Babylon. Because Isaiah says this is a second regathering, and it's from more nations than just Babylon. Nations from which we have no record in Scripture of God ever bringing back the Jews to their land. And by all accounts, it would seem that you could make the case that this prophecy is being fulfilled in our lifetime. I remember when I was a kid, I was sitting in a church service. One of the pastors just, I think it was a throwaway comment. He just said, well, if you don't believe in God, then explain to me the nation of Israel. You know, how do they still exist? And I never forgot that. That's actually a pretty good argument. Because uh, if, you, if you think about this, the, the, even the, the fact that Israel still exists today as a people group is remarkable, given that they've been scattered around the world, they've been persecuted, and yet they've maintained their identity, even their language. And since the founding of the state of Israel in 1948, and even a little bit before that, thousands of Jews from around the world have returned to their ancestral homeland. And I believe it's true that for the first time since the first century, there are now more Jews living in Israel than outside Israel. So the regathering of the Jews, number one. Second, the next major event in Israel's future is the redemption of the remnant. And this is in association with the second coming of Jesus. Uh, Zechariah 12 through 14 is one of the most glorious prophecies in the whole Bible because it depicts the return of Jesus. And not just the return of Jesus, but the very rescue of Israel that Paul talks about when he says, all Israel will be saved. So if you read these chapters, they depict a great battle sometime in the future. It says all the nations will be arrayed against Jerusalem. And for a time, it's going to seem like the nations are winning. So here's a verse. This is Zechariah 14, verse 2. God says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. But then it goes on. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Now, has that happened in history yet? No, it has not. This is a description of Jesus' return. 
His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He himself will come to fight for Israel in her hour of greatest need. And then, at last, they will publicly acknowledge him as their Messiah. Chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more. The most moving scene in all human history, which is given for you in type in Genesis 45, when Joseph is reconciled to his brothers, will be the day when Jesus' Jewish brethren will realize the Messiah has finally come to them in their hour of greatest need. But this Messiah has holes in his feet and holes in his hands, and that this is Jesus, whom they had pierced. And when they are reconciled to him, they will know, as perhaps no nation has ever known, the meaning of the grace of God. Now, why do I say here the redemption of the remnant? Um, I don't have time to go into all of this tonight, but the teaching of Scripture, I believe, is that prior to the return of Christ, Israel will be sifted during a period of tribulation, and that only a remnant within Israel will be saved. And so when Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, there's some different ways of viewing that, but I believe that one way, the way that I would, I would take, take it, is that this verse refers to all ethnic Jews who remain alive on earth at Christ's return. And again, if you want more verses on that, come see me afterward. I've got a, some, some I can give you. So the regathering of the Jews, the redemption of the remnant, and then finally one last event, the renewal of the world. Uh, remember what Paul says, Romans 11, verse 15, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So, so this is an argument from lesser to greater. If their rejection, you know, if, they, if them being temporarily cut out has meant blessings go to the Gentiles, just think, what will it be when they're brought back in? Paul says it'll be life from the dead. So if you think that, like, the gospel has, you know, gone all around the world, or this is amazing, look at all the blessings that have come to the world through Christianity, Paul says, you haven't seen nothing yet. <laughs> In other words, when Israel is restored, it will overflow to all the nations, and the world under the rule and reign of Jesus and his church will be renewed. And this is a period of time that theologians refer to as the millennium. This, I believe, is when many Old Testament prophecies find the fulfillment. So, for example, the famous prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2, which stands engraved outside the headquarters of the United Nations about the day when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, when men won't train for war anymore. I believe finds its fulfillment here in a future era of peace and prosperity under King Jesus. So do you see? Do you see why the story of Israel is a love story at the heart of history? Why can Paul say, 
that God still has a plan for Israel, even after the rebellion of the cross. At the end of Romans 11, here's his answer. His answer is simply God's word. God's word and God's grace. Many of the people of Israel, he says, are now enemies of the good news. I believe this is verse 27. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. But, verse 28, yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. He's the bridegroom who passionately loves and lays down his life for his bride so that even a remnant of faithless Israel can be redeemed. Do you see? So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Just as we conclude, let's just look really briefly at what the story of Israel teaches us about Israel, about us, and about God. Um, First of all, what should this mean for you as a follower of Jesus? First of all, this should humble you. This should humble you. And it should especially humble you if you are a Gentile. The story of Israel shows that God loves and saves people who don't deserve it. And that's you and me. (laughs) And in addition, if you're a Gentile, the story of Israel shows that in a sense, this isn't really our story. You know, of course, it's always been God's intention from, you know, the call of Abraham. He said, I'm going to rescue all people through you. It's always been God's intention to save Gentiles. But, but Romans 11 says that the Gentiles are the wild branches. We were included in a story that didn't start with us. And in fact, in Romans eleven fourteen, Paul even says that the whole reason he's excited to evangelize, maybe not the whole reason, one of the reasons he's really excited to evangelize the Gentiles is so that the Jews will get jealous and seek salvation themselves. So how do you like that? Are you living in such a way that a Jewish person who doesn't know Jesus might look at you and say, hey, you stole my blessings. (laughs) If you're a Gentile believer in Jesus, you should be amazed that God in his grace and mercy has included you in his plans. Number one. Second, let's ask this question. Does this mean that the modern day nation of Israel has theological significance and how do we respond to that? Um, let me say what I said already. It is just, it is a miracle that the nation of Israel exists. I do believe it's a very powerful apologetic for the existence of God. And I would even say that I believe some of the things that we have seen are indeed in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I can't prove that to you, but I would suggest that there's, there's a strong likelihood of that. Now, does this mean that Christians should support Israel no matter, you know, no matter what happens? And, and kind of have to give a qualified answer. In, in a sense, yes. You know, if the Jewish people are beloved on behalf of the patriarchs, if God loves them, then Christians should love them too, no question. And we also owe them a debt of love because of the way that God used that nation to bring the Messiah and to bring salvation into the world. And we can support the Jewish people by rejecting anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And most importantly, we can love the Jewish people by sharing the gospel of their Messiah with them and praying for their salvation. Politically, it can get a little nuanced. God certainly doesn't approve of everything that Israel does as a nation in the Old Testament, and today's Jewish state is run by sinful human beings. And so we should expect that Christians need not approve of every single action that the nation of Israel takes. And we're also called 
to love all people who are made in the image of God. That includes Palestinians, that includes Israelis, that includes people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And especially since there are Christians who are going to be called from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. We're not to be racists here. That said, I think if I were, if I were not speaking on Scripture, I think that it's, it's right in an hour like this for Christians to unequivocally condemn the barbarism and terrorism that we've seen perpetrated against the Jews in the last several days. And I'm not going to get into that now, but just it's always good for Christians to make a stand on, on things like that that matter. Finally, one last question. Let's conclude by asking, what does this reveal to us about God? That's the most important thing. Um, this message, the title of it, The Love Story at the Heart of History, and I've given it that title because that is what the story of Israel is. The story of Israel, just like all of our stories, maybe a little less uh, canonically, reveals a God of love, a God of justice, a God of mercy, and a God of holiness, whose passionate pursuit of Israel testifies to how far he will go to rescue even those who feel most lost and overwhelmed by their sin. Israel's story stands as a reminder that there is no one who is too far gone for the grace of God. And that all are invited to repent and turn to God in faith. And I believe that if you read Scripture in that way, it will make Scripture come alive to you. It will make your own salvation come alive to you in a more meaningful way. That's why the story of Israel matters. It's a charged story. It's a vivid story. It's a dramatic story. And it's a story that reveals to us, like few other things, the breathtaking heart of our God. Let me pray. Father, thank you that, that we are living in just such a beautiful story, um, and it's a love story. And Father, thank you for the way that um, the story that you've given us in Scripture of the nation of Israel is um, just such a beautiful portrayal of what that, the contours of what that story really is. Um, Father, we, we pray that you would bring salvation to the Jewish people. We pray that you would bring salvation to all those who don't know you. Um, Father, we pray right now for peace in the Middle East. Um, Father, we pray for a ceasing of hostilities. We pray for the protection of those who are civilians. We pray, Father, that through this conflict that your name would be lifted high and that people would see the truth of what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do in and through the Jewish people and through all the nations of the world. And Father, would you help us through this story to realize the deep, deep, profound love that you have for us in a very personal way. In Jesus' name, amen.